This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. This is Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 171, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Josh Bell, General Partner and Head of FinTech at Dawn Capital, London-based, European-wide venture capitalists, to discuss the evolution and future of venture capital and the practical points arising therefrom for fundraising funds. As VCs are key to many slash most fast-growth tech firms, as a whole. This is a super important topic and relatively straightforward, so I don't need to explain it. So let's dive in without further ado. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Josh. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Pleasure to be with you, Mike. So we're recording this a little bit before Christmas on the first day of uh, the 58th lockdowns, it feels like, in, in London. And you're sitting in an office, which probably not many people are doing in London at the moment, but at least by the looks of it, it's nice and nice and quiet. Well, it's a heck of a lot quieter here than being at home with very young children. So I'm in the office, but I am by myself. Um, sadly, after you know what we're going to discuss over the next hour, I'm not going to be able to go out for a pint afterwards with tier three having kicked off. I've given up on the rules, but I think you could probably get a takeaway pint so you can stand around in five degrees centigrade, damp London December and, and catch uh, your death of uh, pneumonia if you're not careful, drinking your nice sort of uh, not so warm pint. But yes, talking about Christmas, that's our positive thing because it means so much negative spin. You're at the fortunate stage where Christmas is starting to be jolly and will be jolly for the next few years as you've got uh, young kids. Bridget and I are at the stage where you're trying to lasso your kids so they pop in and say hello at some stage. <laughs> it's a very different uh, scenario. And, and most of my buddies who got down to it just a little bit earlier are in the sort of bouncer grandchild on your knee stage, which apparently is also quite fun. <laughs> we're a long way from that yet. But uh, the older one is two, so we're introducing her to stockings and elf on the shelf and uh bit of Father Christmas delivering the presents next week. Excellent. Well, in a few years' time, you will suffer, no doubt, what you did to your parents, which is the uh, little blighters, certainly I did, will wake up at four o'clock in the morning and try and open the presents under the bed and really quiet and have a parent come in and tell you to go back to sleep. It's too early. So anyway, that's uh, Christmas. But by the time listeners listen to this, it's 2021 and they will have had their Christmas. I hope you all had good Christmases. And uh, as a different intro kickoff, and just to go to the super macro mega picture of tech businesses and VCing and, and stuff like that, you are going to start telling us a little bit about something unfintech, but of uh, fascinating relevance, which is that uh, a company called Airbnb floated last week for quite a few dollars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think Christmas has come early for a lot of the VCs involved with Airbnb. It's a fantastic testament to what's been built by the company that in, at the end of a year in which effectively travel has been hit massively and you know particularly business travel actually you can have a company like airbnb which is pivotal to the sharing economy and people staying as an alternative to hotels and so on floating and within 48 hours being worth a hundred billion dollars to put that in context i think that's a market cap greater than the seven or eight largest hotel groups globally in aggregate just by airbnb a business without any pretty much any physical assets so um you know, it's a little far from what we typically invest in day to day here. We don't do marketplaces. I think in Airbnb, that would have been one of our checks by exception, we'd have been delighted to do. But it's a great example of how, you know, some seed capital in the early days can germinate 
a fantastic business. Yes, and I remember here talking of children. I remember hearing that thing from my kids about Airbnb some time ago, and I thought, oh yeah, oh yeah, you can sort of you know rent your place out on the internet. Okay, I would never have guessed in a hundred billion years that uh, it would be going for a hundred billion, let alone it'd be worth a hundred billion during a period when sort of uh, amongst various types of pleasure that have been banned, holidaying has been sort of nigh on banned for, for most of the people most of the time. So that's an even more phenomenal result, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it shows the power of um, you know, the economics of the sharing economy, where you can have a platform which simply connects demand and supply, and, you know, a slice of revenue is taken off the top. And there are enormous network effects on both sides. I actually did look up the numbers just to make myself extra jealous of the very early stage VCs. <laughs> There's an... There's a, a terrific accelerator, maybe the best in the world, a, a firm called Y Combinator out of Silicon Valley, who bought initially for $20,000 investment, effectively, they had 2% of Airbnb. So that was kind of at a million dollar or so valuation. And, you know, there's been a bit of dilution along the way, but that $20,000 today, this week, is kind of worth in the order of $2 billion. That's kind of 100,000 times return on a 10-year-long investment. So... And Mike, you're a former uh, fund manager yourself. I mean, those are kind of getting on close for 100% annualised return. I mean, that's just, well, it's a good advert for, for venture capital, I guess, and for Y Combinator's investors. Yes, yes. I know it is astronomical and, and, and literally incredible. It's the kind of returns I think one sees when there's a turning point in technology and that we haven't seen the like of, with a little bit of the dot-coms, you know, the Amazons, of course. But since the 19th century, you know, when industrial revolution was being rolled out and railways and, and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, the vast majority uh, failed, um, but actually the ones that succeeded became mega. So it is one of those uh, interesting points in time where a bunch of stuff is happening, but then it's a bit like in a new dimension, the sort of white space on the map. But actually, before you know it, you've got countries, you've got Amazon, you've got Google, you've got Airbnb. And then actually, uh, a bit like Victorian explorers, after a while, you've run out of sort of new territory to uh, explore until something else comes along. And of course, we're now in virtual territory, and, you know, this sort of ideas and uh, abstractions and, you know, no longer you need vast machines and sort of steamships and, and, and all that. So that's quite fascinating. But just I think the one thing that is a corollary from that, and, and it is amazing and it's a great story. Let's just uh, ask you your opinion on this one. The thing that concerns me about this kind of stuff is that once you've got an Amazon and a Google and an Airbnb, the easy thing to say is, oh, yeah, they'll be innovated. New ones will come along and replace them, da 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 But I don't think that's what happens at technology turning points. I think it happens conventionally, as long as big co's aren't propped up by regulation. But that's a separate conversation and a sort of whole podcast in itself about the big co, small co structure. But, for example, let's take railways in the UK. Huge numbers were grown, then it was pruned back. And then, it's, you know, the ownership changed. But actually, we've got the same railways now. I mean, nothing's going to disrupt railways. We're going to have railways forevermore. And in the same way, I assume that in a century's time, OK, the Internet will have changed and all that kind of thing. But, you know, maybe for the sake of argument, Amazon is still there or it's changed its ownership a few times. In a world where you get these network effects. So there is a Facebook, there's a Twitter, there's an Instagram, there's an Airbnb. And they hoover up, literally in an imperial sense, vast swathes of the global map in this new space. What does that leave on the table, literally, quotes for every other business? You know, because you can be an astronomical one. Is there much left? I mean, of course, the answer is there is. But uh, do we not have this sort of differentiation into a few phenomenal players who will sort of hang around one way or another? And then everyone else is kind of almost going for much smaller scraps on the plate. Um... 
I think the history of technology companies is, is kind of littered with examples of, uh, of businesses which at the time, for, I don't know, for example, MySpace, you know, had the network effect, had all of those dynamics, but actually don't survive the long haul because of an inability to innovate. So I don't think we're sort of at an equilibrium state where Facebook can't be challenged. I mean, Facebook is defensively, you know, acquiring up smaller players which are perhaps more innovative than, is, than it is itself. For example, um, with their acquisition of Instagram a few years ago. And, you know, we don't actually see within Facebook's numbers or within Google having acquired YouTube, actually the degree to which these companies are, you know, engines behind the growth of the overall business. So I don't think that will necessarily ever reach that stasis point. And I think we're seeing an acceleration of innovation. And, and, you know, even in the last 10 years, where we're standing today, wouldn't have been projectable. So I wouldn't want to make any any projections about the future. What I would say is, you know, software today is, is a trillion dollar revenue opportunity, particularly with COVID accelerating digitization and the move to software. And we're not seeing, you know, an upper bound, certainly within our businesses, uh, but more broadly in kind of business to business and enterprise software and so on, actually these companies' ability to scale. They are hoovering up what was previously done offline. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I, I certainly agree on the 10 or 20 year view, which is probably all I care about at the, at the moment in particular. Um, and the 100 year view is always hard to say because the point is, I think that virtual is very different. So, you know, let's just take the railways as I've started with the railways. There are train tracks around the UK. UK is a tiny country, England certainly tiny. You can't lay down a new bunch of railway tracks to, to innovate out the railway grid in the same way the electricity generating grid, which con connects a supply of electricity and demand for electricity around the country, that infrastructure is physically there and that very much limits how it can go. But uh, in the virtual case, well, firstly, going back to industries like, you know, looking at US steel and the antitrust legislation at the end of the 19th century in America and all that jazz, they get broken up. And without talking about the US election, there's clear, blatant political skew in the big platforms. There's calls to regulate the big platforms, break them up, do this, that, the other, who knows? So there's the, the government intervention, the lack of infrastructure. So I th yes, I think things are going to to keep changing and who knows about 100 years time I don't think we will find out unless we're little angels floating floating in the sky now talking about the sort of the big picture term we've started with sort of being under two uh, at one stage you were under two and being shown a Christmas stocking and elf on the shelf uh, and at some stage you, in a century you'll be a floating up in the sky with with wings seeing how all your investments did <laughs> and hopefully not like um and not like Vincent van Gogh being massively successful <laughs> in your investments over the, the longer term so Fast forwarding through all these sort of Christmas stockings uh, and, and leaving aside the sort of uh, eternity in the sky wearing a pair of wings, what has the career journey been like in, in, in the middle that's led you to an empty office today? Oh, gosh. Well, I kind of post all the college academic stuff. Which you did quite a bit of, to be fair. You're, you're, being, you're being modest. You, you went to sort of slightly well-known places like, oh, I don't know, Oxford, Harvard and Cambridge, which were certainly doing their rounds. <laughs> Yeah, so I managed to avoid actually getting a real job for quite a long time. Um, at the end of a, a bit of a grand tour of those places, I, I joined McKinsey, you know, the, the Jesuits of capitalism to learn, to kind of learn the craft. So I had five or six years of, of really getting under the skin of working with large organisations, learning how to do kind of two by two matrices and, you know, write PowerPoint presentations. After a few years of doing that, I, I actually really wanted to switch to the principal side of the table. And I got together with my partners, uh, Hawken and Norman, and um, we established Dawn. So we, we 
fundraised through 2007 and launched a fund the end of that year. So we're now 13 years in, uh, over a billion of capital we've raised to invest European-wide Series A, Series B, Series C businesses. So, you know, my CV so far has just uh, McKinsey where I learned my craft and, uh, and Dawn where, you know, we're working with early and mid-stage companies in, in software companies and helping them to grow. Excellent. Well, we'll dive more into to Dawn later um, once we've set the big picture about VCing. But I think it's worth mentioning in passing that you've had some successes yourselves, even if you didn't invest in Airbnb. I, you know, iZettle is very well known. And uh, I happen to have lunch, perhaps my last lunch in London for some time, with a chap yesterday who was off to see Quantexa, who had been on the, the podcast back in the day. They're a great firm. Uh, you're invested there. And also, just in terms of sort of business models and sort of end of year thinking about the big picture, in the modern world, I, you know, the stat I remember from Pension B being on the show is that the average university lever job entrant to the market has a, over a dozen jobs in their life. And uh, that has its benefits. You learn this, that and the other and that kind of stuff. But I think it shouldn't be neglected, certainly for the young folks as well, that the other model whereby you you do th- one thing and you do it for a long time, you get really good at it. The old sort of apprentice mastership route that lasted for centuries in Europe still applies. I mean, if you're a doctor, if you're a neurosurgeon, you'll do it for decades and hopefully you'll be a really good neurosurgeon at the end of it. Or if you're a lawyer or a barrister, you will do that for decades and hopefully you'll get much better. And in the same way, as no doubt you will show, I presume that, you know, the more you go into the office and the more years you do VCing, the, the more you know about it and, and the, the better you get. So uh, I think, yes, the, the doing one thing and doing it well and doing it for a long time model it doesn't really get much of a mention, actually, in, in FS these days. Everyone wants to keep shifting, but it, it's, it's super important, isn't it? Yeah, I think certainly within, within, within venture capital, pattern recognition is really where it's at. So, uh, you know, there's a flywheel effect of learning, you know, how to deploy capital, getting the returns on those capital, how we work with companies, who are the great entrepreneurs. And, you know, it's exit and then kind of rinse and repeat. You know, we return capital, we return it to our investors, we then have more to reinvest. We have founders who've had great exits who then co-invest via Dawn and go on to find their, the next stage of companies. So, you know, sort of by definition, the longer you do this over time, there's just a proportionally greater success, which, which you know, you're kind of able to achieve because you, you just happen to have seen more. And particularly we have, when we kicked off a little over 10 years ago, VC in, in the UK, certainly in Europe, was, was relatively sleepy. There was perhaps only one thirtieth or so of the capital going to companies as, as there is today. I mean, now we're looking at kind of £10 billion plus a year going into UK companies. Back then, it was in the low hundreds of millions. And a lot of that was, you know, was with government intervention and state aid and so on. It's really now a very, very vibrant industry. And you know, what we're seeing every day here, actually, is, um, is the US funds coming on board coming to Europe, looking at great businesses to invest in. There are a ton of them here, and, and so much of our work is actually now co-investing with, uh, with our US friends and, and having them follow on and investing into our companies and so on. It's just a different world to where we started out. It's simply not an industry where you can you know, have a two- or three-year career. You, you just won't learn enough and won't have the experience and the relationships to kind of make it work. Yes, and I like the pattern recognition point, which is that the more experience you have, the, the more, as it were, explicit models you get from sort of less left hemisphere type perception. Um, but the other thing that you get by being sort of older 
and wiser and more experienced is, is, a, is what we call a feel. You get a feel for something, which is I, I always think of as a more right-brained thing, which is not explicit. It's, it's implicit understanding. And, and one of my favourite examples of that was in 2007 when I was doing a gig at Landsbanki, I mentioned before, uh, reforming their uh, risk systems for them. And the London head of risk was an old sort of city guy as well. He'd been around for ages. And I remember we were just having a coffee sitting in reception because it was sort of a busy office. And I looked at him and he looked at me and we both said, there's something funny going on here, you know. You know, just got a bad feel about this in a kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi way. And uh, something like four months later, the company went bust. Well, we then went on to, well, why do you think it's got, you know, da 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 We come up with rational stuff. But I think the real thing is that after decades in an industry, you have a feel in the same way that a neurosurgeon who is 55 can have someone walk in and you'll have a feel for that patient. And that's largely because, you know, part of the the vast subconscious has built up its own implicit models on a whole bunch of kind of almost neural networky parameters that you're not actually consciously looking at. So it's a feel as well. Do you feel that you get more of a feel as well as explicit? Yeah, I think the pattern recognition, a lot of it is kind of intuition developed over time. Um, you know, how does the situation actually smell? How do you see it unfolding? Fundamentally, we see even though kind of the, the software and the elements of the cost base and so on of any company might evolve over time, there are still the same problems and challenges being presented. And when we've seen it three or four times before, we simply know the right way through. We, we, you know, we have a very, here, you know, we have a very experienced, you know, partner team have, have had over 60 years or so of, of venture capital investing. I would actually say, interestingly, you know, perhaps one of the, maybe the top venture capitalists in the world is a, is a British guy, a, actually a, a Welsh guy called uh, Michael Moritz, so I'm sure you know. He's chairman of Sequoia and kind of, you know, in 50 years, I mean, he's been on the boards of PayPal and Stripe and Google and he's now chairman of uh, Klarna out of Sweden. And, you know, in a 50-year career and sitting on the boards of those companies and, and watching those entrepreneurs grow and build them, that's an enormous degree of pattern recognition you have in what makes a success a success and then being able to translate that to the next story. And sitting down with a founding team who, you know, might have an idea and you know a little bit of capital and working out how to grow that into the next 50 billion dollar ad yen and so on you have a huge head start in doing that because you actually were there you know in the garage or whatever back in the google days where you know you put in an early check and also a huge kudos to michael moritz he's also the uk's largest uh, uh well, i believe the largest philanthropist in the uk so he's really putting his money back back to good work uh, and it's terrific that as you know chairman of the world's top vc fund he's actually a british guy Brilliant. I didn't realise he was. OK, so let's move on. All this talk about long periods of time is very relevant to our topic. So in terms of the evolution of VCing, we can talk about what happened last year and this year and then try and project that forward. Um, or maybe we can dig uh, deeper roots uh, and talk about sort of before VCs and then sort of when VCs came about and how it's speciated over time and, and how it's changed and how you think it will change and how you think that matters for companies out there looking to raise funds. I've mentioned many times before, not slightly glibly, but sort of uh, very roughly speaking, that for the sake of argument, the 50s, 60s, 70s, in the UK, there was only three eyes, which had been set up by the banks, so it was sort of fairly statish kind of thing. My first knowledge of this sector was in when I was in at Client Watts in the 80s, uh, the Investment Management Division had a unit called KBDC, Climate Benson Development Capital. So development capital was the phrase I heard in, in the 80s. And then, of course, we've got dot-coms and the, and, and the modern world. So maybe you can, um, rather than my sort of sketch on the back of a fag packet, you can make that a bit more explicit about going back to a world where VC didn't exist and then VC suddenly came into to being and, and, and how it's changed historically and a little bit about where we are now and then, then obviously where, where we think it's going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
so you know like many things vc uh really developed in in, in the us i think it was um Bessemer, who established the first VC fund over 100 years ago. But it really started to get legs, I guess, in the 70s and 80s with firms like uh, Sequoia, who I just talked about, Kleiner Perkins and so on. Then when they were doubling down investments in the semiconductor space, it then accelerated and really got the rocket fuel when you had the opportunity to invest and seed companies like, like the guys who were founding Google. That kind of took us through the 90s. You had a huge acceleration of VC capital going in and the returns in the, in the dot-com boom with a lot of the IPOs and fantastic returns being made for the VC funds out of that. In the early noughties, as uh, you know, the dot-com bust and then there was kind of the recovery, as it were, what we then saw was the establishment of um, the VC industry in the UK. There were some early US funds that had come over, such as Axel and Benchmark, establishing European outposts. We came along the scene, you know, focusing enterprise software kind of late 08. But since then, in the, in the in the decade or so since we established Dawn, there's been a 20x or so in terms of the size of the industry. So that's, you know, funds being managed, you know, our first fund, uh, which we developed with the support of, of actually the UK government, the British Business Bank, we had a, a 30 million pound fund, and now we have over a billion under capital. We have um, the scale of funds, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens, just based in London alone, of seed funds kind of um, germinating these businesses coming through. And then lots of our peer funds at Series A, Series B stage, investing all across Europe. And now kind of with the successes we've been having, you've had Adyen now at $50 billion on the payments processing side and Unity at uh, $40 billion, which is a, a platform for games development and developers. That's now worth $40 billion. You know, So you're seeing European businesses able to generate massive returns for their early backers and to create thousands of jobs and, and founders who kind of come away as billionaires and all feeding back into the system. It's a hugely exciting time. I mean, we're seeing, you know, software businesses now going out at multiples which just, you know, weren't there three, four, five years ago. But we're seeing an underpinning of that that is, you know, perhaps optimistically, but it's quite different in terms of fundamentals to where we were 20 years ago um, in the dot-com boom. These are businesses with like very high recurring revenue, zero churn, selling more to customers each and every year. So those are the kind of businesses which Dawn is underpinning across fintech, we can talk about that a bit later perhaps, in terms of companies we have there, and across the whole of enterprise software. And as I said a minute ago, you know, the opportunity of these companies is, is simply unbounded and is also accelerated by this nasty virus, simply because the world is just moving more and more quickly towards digitization. Yes, so the, I think the thing that you make explicit there, came back to some knowledge that would have been implicit for me, is there's actually been pretty much an exponential takeoff of late in the, in, in the UK over the last 15 years, shall we say, about what's going on. And I'll just recall another data point. I mean, I set up my own thing, which uh, my own business in the late 90s, should be a tech fintech in, in modern terms. And I do remember one or two people at the time saying, oh, actually, you should be in New York. Because if you're in New, New York, there are these VCs and they give you lots of money and you, you can grow 100 times faster. And I said, oh, and I thought, well, I don't really fancy going to New York. So it still wasn't really a sort of um, much of a thing as far as my consciousness was aware there. So in terms of this very rapid growth, the first thing that occurs to me is that although you're not virtual, because you're clearly real, you are in a sense, uh, like many businesses, an Airbnb, as it were, or a national grid, which is you've got supply on one hand and demand on the other, that VCs sit in between a supply of capital, pension funds or whatever. And on the other hand, there are people who want that capital. And your job is to be an intelligent switch and trying to connect supply and demand to make both sides very happy. So 
The observation that VCs per se have grown is clearly correct. And the fact that more businesses can grow is clearly a side effect of the VCs growing. But in a sense, the, the upstream phenomenon here, and of course VCs were part of this, must be that the sector called venture capitalists have more successfully made the case to the great pools of, uh, of money. I, mean, I think I saw the other day that global pension funds, for the sake of argument, are $47 trillion or something. You know, you guys go and knock on their doors and say, oh, yeah, you really should be investing in this because of da 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 So presumably what actually has been driving this has been a much greater asset allocation by the owners of vast pools of capital into this sector. Yes. So certainly there's more capital available to be allocated. In part, that's because we have capital being very successfully returned into the sector. You know, 10, 12 years ago, European venture capital was just seen as an asset class that was perhaps poorly understood, and it hadn't had successful historic returns. You know, the early noughties vintages were, were challenging. But for firms, you know, like ours now, who can deliver multiple consecutive funds in a row, where the distributed capital is already way in excess of what our investors gave us, you know, we're then able to enter this flywheel where the investors and the pension funds and so on want to continue giving us the capital more and more quickly because they see the opportunity available. And there's, you know, as you said, $47 trillion and so on. I mean, you know, the, the amount of capital available to invest into an asset class that's suddenly doing extremely well is, you know, to use that word again, un, unbounded. So, you know, for us now, I mean, we're, we're raising funds, but we have to cap the size of the fund because, you know, we see an upper limit certainly of how much capital can be successfully deployed to be able to return the rates of return we've been able to get historically. So we have a, a happy investor base, a very happy investor base, and we have to limit among those uh, among those people actually how much they can put into each and every one of our funds. So it's, it's a great position to be in. It's not where we were 12 years ago when we were first having the conversations around establishing Dawn. That's well said. I mean, I think the point I would make, which is, um, again, having been in fund management in the past, that VC is a bit like pension fund management was in the 80s before people really measured against indices and, and that kind of thing. And the, the article that always sticks in my mind is that the industry as a whole, every VC, does very poorly performance-wise. The best ones do, do very well. And there's this famous article by Diane Mulcahy, uh, an ex-VC her, herself, uh, in the HBR in 2014, saying that venture capitalists are well paid to lose money. The stats are no, uh, six years out of date by now, but uh, as I recall, it just sort of stuck in my mind that you know the average US VC in the greatest tech boom in history has uh, not returned the funds that they took from the investors. Uh, and, and I think what the, the percentage were, the percentage that didn't even get a carry was very high, I think more than 50% or something like that. So as you see in any boom in industry, there's been a boom in the industry. The best, let's say the top decile, certainly perhaps the top quartile, the best ones have been bloody good at it, whether it's prospecting for gold and, and you know and on the West Coast or something like that, uh, or VCing. Um, but lots of people come into the field who aren't experienced, who don't manage to do the pattern matching and all that kind of stuff. Now, what are the challenges of a shakeout? I mean, if you're, if you're a foreign exchange trader, the market moves so much, you do so many fast trades. I hire a foreign exchange trader and he just loses money for six months ago, I'll forget it. But the VC industry has gone through this exponential growth it's timescales that the speed of light is so much slower in terms of I give you some of my money and in seven years time it comes back to me that the dynamics of such a market are much slower to evolve but one would assume that at some point there will perhaps inevitably going to be a shakeout of the bottom 50% shall we say in America or in the US or UK or, or around the world. 
I mean, certainly there will be, uh, you know, funds which fail to perform. And as you say, funds which don't deliver carry, which is, you know, the profit share, because they've actually repaid back all the initial capital to investors. You know, we're in the opposite position where all of our, you know, early funds are actually, you know, we're in carry, we're distributing capital back to investors. But, you know, at a, at a portfolio company level, you have the power law where a small handful of your investments generate the overwhelming proportion of your returns. And then kind of as you aggregate that at a, therefore at a, um, at a VC fund level, you have that kind of at an accelerated level. So you have a very small proportion of VC funds who deliver the outsized returns across the industry. And then you have a whole bunch of other funds who are able to raise their first fund or first couple of funds and to draw management fees on that. But then, you know, the point at which, you know, the rubber has to hit the road and they have to show returns to investors. And and it, it's extremely transparent how their companies, their portfolio companies are doing. And then they won't be able to raise perhaps a second, third or fourth fund. So, you know, if by a shakeout there are, you know, some of the weaker funds who don't make it, then, then certainly that, that will be on the way. But at the same time, you're seeing uh, accelerated returns by by the funds who have the DNA to find and uh, help to grow the top the top portfolio businesses. And there are a small handful of funds based across Europe who can do that. There are some great funds in the US, and then there are many funds who who perhaps won't move beyond raising their first or second fund because you know, they don't get those ingredients in place. Yes, and hearing you say that it reminds me, it's some kind of power law, the name has escaped me, but if you look at the mass of stars, the bigger stars will have bigger gravity, they will attract more mass, in, they will get better faster, it's some kind of exponential power law, you know, the, 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 the distribution of masses of stars, and it's the same in industries, because, you know, going back to Sequoia, uh, as the prime example used before, once you have such a successes and so many contacts that everybody wants to, to go to you. You get the chance to, to choose some more, as it were. It's a bit like being a supermodel. You know, if you're a supermodel, you've got a choice of boyfriends, which uh, the average person um, would not have. And in the same way, when you're known to be successful, not only do people want to come to you, but actually then vice versa, that the VC talking about boards can bring much more added value to the board of the company and to the growth of the company uh, above and beyond. Look, here's 100 mil, Mike, for your, for your business. Uh, you've got it. And thanks very much. Let me know how you got in 10 years time. It's no, I've got Josh on my board. That's a rare thing because you can't do a thousand boards. And Josh has got a you know, better part of 15 years experience. He's been in all these successful businesses. You're going to add value to me as a person and hence to my business. Yeah, and actually, when we're you know when we're talking to companies about Dawn having a prospective investment into the business, you know we can say whatever we want to say about Dawn, but actually we say, look, here are the phone numbers of our founders who we work with. You're a founder, pick up the phone to her and ask her about, you know, her experience of working with Josh at Dawn or Hawken at Dawn over or Norman at Dawn over the last five, six, seven, eight years. Uh, you know, for us, that's the best proof of what we do is when the founders whose companies we invest in and want to help grow can articulate to the next generation of founders who we want to invest in, you know, why take money from Dawn? It's really why we've been able in so many of our kind of uh, prospective conversations, you know, we put in the term sheet and we're then always able to follow that up with being able to put in capital. Right. Okay. So we've had this huge growth that we discussed. Uh, there's a natural process where um, the strong get stronger and, and the weak fall by the wayside and evolution within the, the market. We've got a very large, complex market now 
indeed. If you were back in your McKinsey days, you'd have no doubt a 2D, 2D chart and, and to put it all on. And, and going back to my great business plan for next year, which is I'm going to make an absolute fortune out of London FinTech podcast hoodies. So I'm going to coming back to you in six months time. I'm going to lose at least, at least 20, 30 million to really go all the way. And I think, oh, I better speak to some other people as well. I've got all these random names of VCs in my head, as you might imagine, but I don't have them on some 2D chart. Uh, so how would you actually describe to a, a listener who needs to approach this landscape, how to sub-segment in the landscape. We're no, we're no longer 20 years ago where there's only half a dozen in London and you go and speak to all of them. It's now there's so many. You've got to be efficient from your perspective, but also from, from the, the VC's perspective. You don't want everyone that's trying to raise money coming to you because it would just take too long to filter them all. So what's the topology? So the topology, I guess, would be, you know, if you're looking at kind of a two-by-two, as it were, certainly along one axis would be, you know, along the x-axis would be what is the check size that you as an, as an entrepreneur is looking to raise? You know, is it a seed check, kind of one, two, three, four million, all the way up to big growth capital checks, 50, 60, 70, 100 million plus. And for an entrepreneur, you know, as a successful journey, you know, you'll be raising all the way along that. But what you will have are different funds, you know, focusing at different stages. So seed funds, you know, writing the initial checks of one, two, three, four million. There's some, you know, great seed funds across Europe doing that, all the way through to um, some of the larger growth funds that writing those first checks of 50, 60, 70 million. Where Dawn sits along that, along that kind of axis is, um, you know, our first checks tend to be around the 10 million or so levels, sometimes maybe slightly less. But we also have, you know, the ability to invest actually up to 100 million per company. So we can invest, you know, both from our principal fund and what we have top up funds and so on. So we can kind of join the journey from then going forward. You then have a, you know, the y-axis of part of your topology. For the y-axis, you would have, really, it's kind of degree of specialization. So you might have very, you know, generalist funds, particularly on the, on the seed fund side, who are kind of investing across everything, all the way through to much more specialized funds. So you know, we see ourselves as a specialized fund. We invest simply into enterprise software across Europe. So, you know, the choice, I guess, as an investor, when you're coming, sorry, as, as a founder, when you're looking to raise capital is, you know, at what stage and how much you're looking to raise? And am I looking more for perhaps a, a specialized investor versus, versus a more generalist one? And those are kind of the two principal axes against which most of the VC scene sits. If we added in kind of a third axis, if you want to go 3D, and I guess would be geography, whereby... You know, some funds, for lots of reasons, are relatively local. You might have, you know, they invest. There are literally funds who invest just within London because that's where they have, a, a, you know, their their remit to invest in, or, or UK wide, or European wide, or even some funds who invest globally. So, you know, that, that's really how the whole kind of VC world fits into that into that cube, I guess. Excellent. Well, that's very helpful. So, if you're some newbie founder, maybe. Uh, some of the listeners will be in this this model that they're interested in this kind of stuff and maybe in a year or two they actually set up their business and, and they need these things what's the best way to to get a grip of the topology when you've just got a telephone directory and there's a sort of thousand vcs in london or, or however many there are these days how would you advise a nephew or a niece who's about to go and sort of uh, raise funds uh, how to draw up a, a short list or a long list of a, i don't know a dozen or two dozen vcs to speak to out of all the various ones they could you know, the, the warmest intros and the best, you know, the best way into really speaking with VC funds tends to be by warm referrals. So, you know, when our, any of our founders come to us and say, we'd like to introduce, you know, the founder of this other company to us, or there are reasons why we should be looking particularly at this, uh, at this software and so on, that's hugely exciting for us. So, you know, rather than the kind of the cold, direct email, that never really ends 
in a particularly positive conversation. It's quite hard kind of that way in. Really try to find um, the warm intro, get introduced, and then start to meet people, you know, across the VC funds. But target it to, you know, you're, you're talking to the VC funds who, you know, in that two by two we just talked about, will be investing the right amount of capital which you're seeking and also have the right kind of vertical or sector focus for you. But then, you know, there are lots of routes into company. I mean, there's also, you know, post-COVID, there are also all the usual ones around the networking and building relationships and all of those ways in. But ultimately for us, it's, uh, uh, it's an incredibly warm referral, is, is a great way to start a conversation with Dawn. Yes, I think there's any kind of biz dev is like that, isn't it? I mean, it's the same thing with uh, the podcast. In six months' time, you, you ping me on one liner and say, hey, Mike, you know, you haven't had these guys on the show. What are you doing? You're crazy. You've got to have them. Well, that's straight in. That's straight to the top of the thing, and I definitely check them out, as opposed to I get my, get my sort of, you know, my labour of Hercules. I've got to clear out the stables of the, the, uh, the inbox again, and there's, a, you know, 150 emails to plough through of people I may have heard of, but I can't really remember what they do or never heard of at all. So warm intros. Right, OK, so all that's... Very interesting and very clear. And having started off with this sort of decade, decades view of things and the fact that you're one of the more experienced general partners in London now and been very successful uh, in fintech and this enterprise software market and, and all that kind of stuff. And obviously thinking about the bigger picture and it's the end of the year, it's a good time to think about next year and, and where things are going. How do you see the VC market developing over the next few years? What do you think the ma- major trends that listeners should look at, out for are? I think in terms of VC funds, you're going to see more of a menu of different funds, which, you know, pools of capital are available from. You know, as we start out with, you know, we have our, our flagship fund and then top up funds, and we're looking at kind of other ways in which we can continue to support the longer term journey for companies, particularly maybe even post IPO. So keeping kind of companies within the stable for longer, even after kind of exits are monetized and so on. So I think you'll see that among a lot of a lot of top VC firms. I think you're going to see you know more platform support. So that's where you have, um, for example, for ourselves, we have a, a director of talent, and she's able to work with all of our portfolio companies and and enable them to be as uh, optimized as possible with how they build their C-level teams and think about kind of their overall org structures more generally. Those kind of ways of helping companies, you're going to see VCs stepping up a lot more across. And then I think you're going to see this. Uh, as you have more and more successful exits, there's going to be this great flywheel of kind of talent who've worked within one organization, perhaps made some money from their exit, kind of then going to set up the next generation of companies. We saw that with our iZettle exit out of Stockholm, and then we were able to invest into the next generation of iZettle founded team members' companies. Plus, also, you know, if the exits are large enough, they're also making a bunch of money and they're able to invest into their own next companies, but also support the whole generation of next companies. So it's, it's hugely exciting for all those reasons. Oh, excellent. Well, that sounds a, a very sophisticated future and very succinct and, and, and very clear exposition. And I can see that that would work very well, as I mentioned on the podcast before, uh, apropos boards, uh, in terms of my research, um, just as the average VC fund doesn't do very well performance-wise, but the great one does great in the same way. The average founder has said to me that the average VC in London says they'll bring added value, but actually it doesn't really amount to much, whereas the great VC <laughs> brings a hell of a lot. So this talent is, is, is a very good example of how I can see that a differentiating factor in the future in not just performance of the funds, but in the attraction to people seeking money will be demonstrable added value, which is that I set up a VC and in a year's time I'll say, say to a friend, oh yeah, I'll add value, you know, I'll add value. 
Yeah, sure. Well, okay, I'll try to. But you guys, if you've got a head of talent, again, with lots of experience, that's going to demonstrably add more value. Right. I hope that's been useful to you listeners out there. I hope some of you will go off and be founders and ones like the VCs today or the podcast in December about uh, raising capital uh, will be helpful to you and your journey and society at large as you employ people. And before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are far secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. Theenlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Josh, we've covered a hell of a lot. We've touched on Dawn once or twice. Are, are there any sort of uh, simple, clear messages you'd like to leave in listeners' minds uh, as we go away about sort of a little bit, you know, who Dawn is precisely, who should be contacting you for funds and, and, and fundraising, and what it is that you need as a sort of fairy godmother wish for 2021 that will make you even bigger and better and more successful by the end of next year? Thanks, Mike. Look, as I said, Dawn is a, a specialised enterprise software fund. We invest uh, across Europe with a with an special focus within fintech and companies who sell into the financial services function of larger corporates. So, you know, if you have a company which is, uh, you know, has the DNA and the dynamics to be the next iZettle or Tink, like a European category leader, the, the nature of which we invest in, we'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can reach out to us through the website or, or just email me directly. Uh, josh at dawncapital.com we're also always looking for fantastic new team members yeah and so you know my wish for 2021 is uh you know we carry on investing into great businesses um and you know we carry on building out our team to carry on being one of the preeminent vc funds within europe great well that's been a, a fantastic exposition thank you for that josh um as i say i've been sort of vaguely aware of development capital, VC capital, whatever you call it, sort of most of my career, but never that explicitly until obviously in the, the podcast, I've spoken to a few in detail. And certainly for me, it's been very helpful and, and no doubt for many of the listeners. In terms of having a higher resolution JPEG about what's been going on and, and where it's going and, and, and all this kind of thing. So I think that, as we say, you're clearly a great specialist in your area and been very successful in that and long may that continue. But you haven't forgotten your McKinsey days in terms of your nice, simple, clear PowerPoint and, and explaining and adding value. So I wish you and Dawn every success in the future in 2021 and beyond. Thanks, and to you and your family too, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Could sit in a bender all day, watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn, watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great
We are wild like the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the fire light dance with me. 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 Watch the